0: John, chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Heavenly Father, we come to you today thankful for your word, thankful that you are who you are and you have revealed yourself to us through your word and ultimately and perfectly through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, it is in you that we live. It is in you that we abide. It is in you that we delight. And today, would you show us Jesus all the more Would you show us Jesus? Open up our eyes. And would you help me by the power of your spirit to be a help to my brothers and sisters? In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be truly human? This is a question that we're all asking, even if we don't know that we are asking it. We're all trying to understand what we are and who we are. Now, anthropology is the big, expensive word for this, and it just simply means looking at what it means to be human, and that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be looking at what it means to be human through the lens Of this scripture. But before we get into that, I should ask, have you ever heard of Chekhov's gun? Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's gun is a narrative principle for good storytelling that was identified by a famous playwright, Anton Chekhov. He didn't invent it, he just spoke about it. So what is Chekhov's gun? Well, have you ever watched a TV show where something happens, something is said, a A scene begins, a character is introduced, a a camera focuses on something and light attaches to that something in a a particular or peculiar way, or an action is undertaken, but then it's just left hanging. No resolve. It's like an open door that nobody walks through. It's like a sentence stopped dead in the middle. It's like a promise awaiting a fulfillment. It's like the writers of the show forgot to address it, and you wonder, like, are they going to get back to that thing? If you're a savvy show watcher, you'll say something like, wait a minute, what about this? Or what about that? And you ask that question because they have intentionally introduced something, and the human mind instinctively latches onto that thing that is unresolved and cries out for a resolve to it. See, Chekhov's gun is a narrative principle that says if something is included in the story's beginning, then it must be important by the story's end. If something is included in the story's beginning, then it must be important by the story's end. It's a type of foreshadowing. If there's a gun hanging on the wall in Act 1, it must be fired by the last act, according to Chekhov. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, there are a lot of Chekhov's guns in scripture, so to speak. There are a lot of setups that have us leaning forward into the story. There are all sorts of hanging questions that call for an answer, all sorts of promises that are calling out to be made good on, lots of events that leave us wondering Have you ever read, like, there's that story in Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Numbers or Chronicles? And you're like, What in the world? That makes zero sense. Why? Well, there's reasons. There's reasons. See, Scripture is the God-breathed, humanity-pinned, story-shaped library that leads to encountering Jesus. Scripture is the God-breathed, humanity-pinned, story-shaped library that leads to encountering Jesus. It's, It's God-breathed. His spirit has inspired it. He is the the source. He is the ultimate author. But it's humanity-pinned. It's written by particular people in particular times and particular places in history. It is historic. It's a library. It's a library of 66 books, different genres that all work together in a cohesive way to tell the story of what God is doing in this world through Jesus Christ. It all points to Jesus. It's cohesive and it's unified. Now, understanding this will help us to see the stunning truth and the beauty of today's text. A text in which we are going to see humanity on brutal and beautiful display. What does it mean to be truly human? So, into the text we go into the rising light of the early hours of a long ago Friday morning. In the early hours... Jesus is on trial before Roman power. He stands accused before Pilate, the governor of Judea. The mob is outside. They are hell-bent on killing this Jesus. But Pilate has found him not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Yet even so, Pilate is working a scheme. He's working a situation as to land Not in further hot water. He is trying to find a way through this thing. And so, verse 1 Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, which sounds like a non sequitur, like it's disjunct. He's not guilty, so he took him and flogged him. What's Pilate up to? Pilate has Jesus whipped. Now, it's important for us to understand some cultural setting here. There are three kinds of whippings that are put forward in Roman law, three levels, so to speak. And those are fustigatio, flagellatio, and verberatio. I promise the whole sermon won't be in Latin today. I promise. But these three levels, the first one, Fustigatio, this was a nasty, bloodletting whipping that was the least severe, and it was used for light offenses, and it was used as a warning saying, don't mess with Roman power. If you mess with us, this is a taste of what you will get. But then there was Flagellatio. This was a brutal flogging for criminals with serious offenses. It's terrible. But it got even worse. Verberatio. This was a terrible scourging that tore the flesh, the muscle, off the bone because what they did is they embedded pieces of stone or pieces of, of lead or bone or glass into the whip and it would act like a grappling hook and it would tear the body apart. Almost everyone who underwent this third level would die. At some point, if it wasn't immediately, it was following it. Now at this point, it's likely, and this might be new information, um, but it's it's likely that Pilate gives this innocent Jesus the first or second level of whipping. Still splitting his back, still spilling blood, still making a mess of this Jesus. But he will be giving him the monstrous whipping, that third level one, a little bit later. Okay, let's continue on. Verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. What is he up to? So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, "Behold the man." So the Roman soldiers, they make a plaything of this Jesus abusing him, mocking him. They press a crown of thorns into his scalp, drawing blood. Most likely, it was from a date palm tree. The date palm trees are everywhere in Israel. Some of you going to Israel this week, you're going to see them everywhere. And they can bend these things easily, but they have these long, nasty, green thorns that go up to 10 inches long. So it was likely one of these crowns made of date thorns. So Pilate takes this pitiful looking man This sad, ridiculous character of a king who is crowned in pain, who is robed in shame. And he brings him before this hungering crowd, this this pathetic sight, this obvious non-threat. Look at this guy. Surely this will strike up some sympathy in the hungering crowd and they will drop the charges. They will relent and not press to have him crucified. And then Pilate is off the hook. So what happens? Well, verses 6 through 8. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because... He has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Well, this wretched display of a man, this brutalized, objectified, violated, dehumanized person in front of them does not stop their bloodlust. In fact, it turns it up. It boils. This bloodied man, this bloodthirsty people, are painting for us a horrific picture of humanity. They shout out, crucify him. Now, Pilate is all the more afraid at this point. A few different reasons. One, he sees the vehemence of the crowd. He sees that they are on the edge of a violent riot. He knows more than most what mob mentality does. He has cited them before, incited them before. He knows the violence that will come when mob mentality Rises. They're on the edge of violence. But also, second thing, the people have just said some explosive words. They said that Jesus has made himself the Son of God. That takes Pilate's breath away. Divi Filius in Latin would be Son of God. And this is a problem because Caesar was called Divi Filius. Caesar was called the Son of God. So if this Jesus who is making himself the Son of God, that's a direct claim to go against Caesar, who is the Son of God. Now Pilate is in real big trouble. Not only that, there is, there is room within uh, the, the Roman worldview for supernatural beings, demigods or gods, to enter into this world and with their magic cause problems. And if you don't treat them well, you. We'll have trouble. And keep in mind, Pilate's wife, remember? Pilate's wife, she had a dream. She said, have nothing to do with Jesus. Have nothing to do with this guy. So he has all that going on. This Friday is not a good Friday for Pilate. It's getting worse by the moment. So back to talk to Jesus. Verses 9 through 11. He, it's Pilate, he entered his headquarters again and he said to Jesus, where are you from? are you one of these ones walking among us that's going to cause me trouble? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. What a response. Where are you from? Silence from Jesus, which provokes frustration in Pilate, who is used to having people tell him what he wants them to say. I have power over life and death. I can make you bleed. I can kill you. And you have no response to me? And then Jesus answers with a posture of soul unlike any other. He says, you, Pilate, the power that you have, you only have it because it's been given to you from above. God is the one in charge of all of this. (laughs) What a response. Take in the magnificence of that. What a posture of peace, even though his body is vibrating with pain, his nerves are spiking and his flesh is on fire. Yet he has this composure. And he makes an interesting statement. This is a little sidelight for our text today, but he makes this interesting statement here we should notice. He says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And it seems he's referring to Caiaphas, the high priest who handed him over. Caiaphas is guilty of Murder in cold blood. He wants to see Jesus killed. And so he says his sin is greater. And we have this thing sometimes where we go, well, all sin is sin. And, and what ends up happening is we use this all sin is sin thing to commit things and then to shuttle these greater soul-shattering sins under this category of all sin is sin, placing alongside other things, making it feel like it's no big deal, placating our conscience. Different sins have different ramifications and shatter communities and shatter souls in different ways. Something for us to think about. Well, imagine Jesus talking this way to Pilate, the power broker. This otherworldliness comes through him in his calm and his wisdom and it freaks Pilate out. Pilate is freaked out because Pilate is confronted by holiness. And holiness rattles the sinful person. It's too it's too beautiful, it's too pure, it's, it's too blazing to not affect the human soul. It pushes the darkness back. Now verse 12 through 13. From then on Pilate sought to release him. He's like, I got to get out of this. But the Jews cried out. They lean in. They're not going to let him out of this. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. In short, Pilate tries to find a way out of killing this unsettling man, Jesus. But then the crowd, the religious leaders, they play their trump card. They play their ace and they say, if you don't kill him, you're not a friend of Caesar. You're against Caesar. And this was the biggest threat that they could throw at Pilate. This is the biggest threat that they could level at him because this Tiberius Caesar. Well, one, you should know there's a lot of political unrest. There's, there always was with Caesars, right? But, but this Tiberius Caesar is really, really suspicious. If he catches a, a whiff of anyone trying to gain power on him, he will snuff them out. Pilate knows this, and Pilate wants to be on the good side of, of Tiberius. So he couldn't risk any press that said he was a revolutionary sympathizer. So look at this picture for a moment. This is called the Pilate Stone. This is found in Israel, um, Caesarea Maritima. Some of you will be there in the next week. I'm jealous. Um, And you'll be able to see this, at least a a copy of this there. And here's what it says. It says in Latin, which most of us can't read, so I'll read it in English. To the divine Augusti, this Tiberium, or temple, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated... Okay, why am I showing you this? Well, it's, it's to, to show you that we have Pilate here who is a moral coward and also a bootlicker. And he is doing whatever he can, which is including building temples and dedicating them to Tiberius Caesar. Because he wants to be on his good side. And when he is threatened with, with this, you're not Caesar's friend, he knows. He knows they have his number. The other reason why I'm showing you this is because Pilate's real. Caesar Tiberius is real. We're not dealing with myth in the sense of things being made up. We're dealing with history, things written in stone and flesh and blood. Okay, so he, we have Pilate here, the self-serving moral coward, so to speak. And his back is against the wall. So what does he do? He goes to the judgment seat. He has no choice. He goes to the judgment seat to make the official sentencing. Verses 14 through 16. 16. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Hold on to that. We're coming back to it. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. This should never come out of a, Jew, a Jew's mouth. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. See, Pilate tries one last time. Shall I crucify your king? Maybe they'll change their answer. No go. Yes, kill him. And then just to push him just a little bit farther, they say, We have no king but Caesar, Pilate. How about you? How about you? <laughs> They have lost their senses in their hatred for Jesus. They have disavowed God by disavowing Jesus. And when we disavow Jesus, we disavow God because it is Jesus who shows us who the Father is. There is no way the Father outside of Jesus. And so Jesus is to be crucified, and then Jesus here will be Whipped again near to death with that third level of torture, nailed to a cross, to a device that is engineered for maximum pain, shame, and slowness of death. And through all of this, through all of this, Jesus maintains an unnerving composure of majestic poise while he bleeds out on a marble floor, while he bleeds out on crossbeams and faces cosmic level evil. Who is this Jesus? So so do we see it? Do we see the portrait of humanity that is before us? It's horrific. It's bent. It's broken. It's wicked. It's ugly. And so for a moment, let's take this in. Let's behold humanity. Take it in. Envy. Envy. And sin, have these religious leaders brutalize and violate this innocent man. Roman soldiers who have gone numb, themselves traumatized by violence, have entered into deep levels of cruelty and they use this Jesus as a plaything, abuse him and shame him. Here is the human condition. We are all those who have done awful things. And we are all those who have had awful things done to us. Behold sinful human nature. In the mob, and in Pilate, we see wrecked humanity, relentlessly drunk on self, proud, arrogant, clenched hearts and clenched fists. And in Jesus, here we have a picture of royal humanity ravaged by our sin, abused, violated, objectified, made a mockery of. And that's what sin does. Sin ravages the image bearers of God. God. It mocks their royal status as God's pinnacle of creation. It stomps on their divinely given dignity and their brilliant destiny. Sin abuses, disintegrates, devalues, and vandalizes the human condition. And here in Jesus, as a Savior who fully identifies with us, we see the state of humanity ravaged, abused, mocked. Sin promises us God-likeness. If you do this, You'll get the good stuff. It promises us likeness to God, but then it dehumanizes us. Sin promises us victory, and then it vandalizes us, and sin promises to give us things, but all it does is take, take, take. That next hit that you need to feel an ounce of pleasure, well, that will take more from you, and you will need more of a hit next time to get any bit of pleasure. It just takes, and it takes, and it takes. It steals from you. But this brokenness was never meant to be our destiny. And John wants us to see here the glory, the glory of humanity. Humanity. Let's look deeper. Verse 5. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. The word behold, it means look. It's, It's a command. Look, open your eyes. See what is in front of you. Truly see. This is important. You can't miss this. Give it your attention. Give it your gaze. And the word for man here is the word that can mean humanity, human being, not just male gender, it's, it's anthropos. And he uses, he uses the direct object here, the, this is the human being. What we're seeing here is, is true humanity, John is pointing to Pilate's words to point out the truth. What's happening here? We're seeing true humanity. Humanity as humanity ought to be. In Jesus, we are seeing the truly human one, the ultimate human, the perfect human, the representative of what humanity is meant to be. This is the man. Humanity as humanity ought to be. Trusting the Father. Crowned with sacrificial love. Robed with costly righteousness, loving his enemies, conquering evil with good. This is humanity. This is what you are called to. This is our destiny. Human nature is a good and a glorious thing. So often we think, oh, the air is human. If we could just get past our humanity. No, 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 no. You don't get past your humanity. You go deeper into your humanity and become like Christ to become truly human. God's royal ambassadors, His image bearers on this earth. That is what we are all called into. And some of you feel gray and downcast in soul as you, as you hit that cubicle come Monday morning and go, what, you know, what is my life? Your life is a representation of true humanity an ambassador of, of image-bearing here on this earth. Some of you are so worn out by those two or three or four toddlers by the time you go to bed, and you're like, I don't even know how to, how to do this. And then you realize, actually, this isn't dehumanizing. My humanity is in this, giving my life for the good of others that they would flourish. This is what we are called to. John wants us to see that this is the man that all of history has been waiting for and winding towards. So let's go back to the garden for a few moments. In the garden, when sin slithers in and starts its destructive, disintegrative work, God promises that he will send a man to undo the serpent's attack. And he will reverse Adam's betrayal. Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking. He's speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, her seed, her future descendant. He shall bruise your head, you're going to lose. And you shall bruise his heel. He will win through the wounding. He will win by the wounding. But then the story moves on. And it's like, whoa, whoa, like, where does, what happens to that? What happens to that? And then the whole story is like, is this the man? Where's the man? Is he Abel? No, he's gone. His blood's in the ground. Is he Seth? No, certainly not Cain. Well, maybe he's Noah. Noah looks like a really good option. Promising, but nope, not Noah. Another fall in a garden-like scene with wine and family dysfunction. Genesis 3 on repeats. Is it Abraham? Could be. Good potential. But, the prom- but, but not him either because he fails with another serpent, so to speak, and he doesn't protect his wife and gives her to the enemy. But the man will be a descendant of Abraham's. Moses. Here's a good option. Surely the promised one has come in the great prophet, but no... Moses has a wanted poster. His blood on his hands. He doesn't even make it into the promised land. How about King David? This could be the one. So close. So many ways. The warrior king. The poet king. He's got blood on his hands too. And he betrays the woman. He takes what is not his and it leads to bloodshed. See, when Pilate says, behold the man, unknowingly he points to Jesus as the long-awaited one, the one who would be truly human, the one who would live as, as we were designed to live, as Adam was designed to live, the one that would not let sin dehumanize him nor disintegrate him, the one who would fulfill the first man's fumbled commission, To bring order and flourishing, to guard the garden from the evil one, to kick out the snake, to cultivate life, and to extend the borders of blessing all across the globe. He would be the one who would die to save us. The one who would take the thorns into his own body that came up out of the ground because of the first rebellion. Here in this scene, you have the thorns. You have a red bloodied piece of clothing. Genesis. The sacrifice, the clothing made from an animal and the thorns. That it's, it, John's weaving this stuff. Saying, do you see how God has written history? Do you see the glory of this Jesus? Behold, the truly human one. Humanity as humanity is meant to be. See, John wants us to face our broken humanity And see the beauty of our intended humanity. We are not left in that brokenness. The glory is set right alongside in the person of Jesus. It's fascinating. In verse 5, he says, behold the man. In verse 14, he says, behold your king. Behold the man, behold your king. This man is the king. Humanity is meant to be royal. Royal. Now, I want you to notice something here. There's that line there in verse 14. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. This Passover happens to be on a a Sabbath. And this is why the Jews want Jesus off the cross as soon as possible. They don't want a dead bloody body dirtying up the holiday. It's unclean. So help me out here. I need your help. So the day before the Passover, what day of the week is that? Let's go ahead and put this up just to help us out. What, it's Friday. What day of the week? Count it. It starts a Sunday. It's six. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Seventh day, Sabbath. Seventh day is the day of rest. Oh, that's great. So what? A big so what? Like a really, really big so what that John wants us to see. It's why he puts the details in here. Go back to Genesis. What is created on the sixth day? Human beings. God makes human beings. And he says, behold, look. This is very good. This is very good. And so when he reverses the curse, when he reverses the fall, it's on the sixth of the day that he reintroduces humanity and says, behold, the true human being. Humanity is humanity ought to be. And then it gets even better, this this bit, I was rereading Genesis just way too early this morning, and Genesis 3.22, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, Genesis 3.22, this is after after the sin, after the fall, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out with his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, and then he says, then we've got to boot him out so he doesn't live forever in his sin. What is, what is John doing by highlighting these things and pulling these things together and taking the garden and, and putting it over the scene? He said, he's saying, behold, the, the one who comes to reverse sin, the one who comes to reverse the exile, to bring us back into the garden, to bring us back into relationship, behold, the Savior the world has long awaited. And so, the one that we are called to be like is this, Jesus. In Jesus, God became human in order that humans might know what it means to be truly human. In Jesus, God became human in order that humans might know what it means to be truly human. Jesus not only shows us the Father, but he shows us a portrait of what our humanity could be as a redeemed and restored people. And so the more we become like Jesus, the more we become truly human. The more we become who we really are. And what does this mean? It means that we delight in the Father. It means that we rule and we reign in this world via love. It means that we are crowned With sacrificial love, we are robed in a costly righteousness. We are those who love our enemies. We are conquering evil with good, agents of reversing the curse. Our our anthropology should be found in and anchored in our Christology. Our anthropology should be found in Jesus. Now, if this is the reality of the text, that in Jesus God became human... In order that humans might know what it means to be truly human, and the more we become like Jesus, the more truly human we are. Well, what's our response to this text? It is simply and wonderfully this Behold Jesus, behold him, look at him. See, there's a principle that is woven into this world that we could talk about at any level, from any layer, and it's simply this. We become like what we behold. We become like what we behold, what we gaze at, what we give our attention to, and ultimately our affections to, what we look upon begins to form us. It begins to shape us. And so just think about it. As as children, we watch our parents for thousands and thousands and thousands of hours, don't we? It does something to us. It's called family of origin. You ever wonder, you know, like, oh no, I've become my dad. How did that happen? Because you were formed. You beheld for years, for decades. And it shapes you. It's formative. Now, you're not bound to that. That's not your destiny because Christ changes you and you have a whole new family of origin in Christ. But what we behold shapes us. Uh, middle schoolers, uh, you know, they, they find a, a new band or like a, a new movie stars and they, 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 they watch them and they're just soaking it in and suddenly the way they talk sounds more like that person and the way they dress sounds more like that person. My kids watch a movie and suddenly they're that princess or they're that hero from the movie. They're running around the house doing it because they beheld it and they want to become it and start to emulate it's like second nature to us. What we give our attentions to form us, shape us, and change us. And so as followers of Jesus, those who are called to be conformed to the image of Christ, we are to fill our eyes, to fill our minds, to fill our thoughts with this Jesus. And this is why one of our first practices is meditation on God's Word, God's word that. The, the God breathed, humanity pin story shaped library that leads to encountering Jesus. The more we feed on God's word that is about Jesus, the more that we are conformed into his image by the power of the Spirit moving within us. So we are to behold this Jesus, to gaze upon the truly human one. This is the first practice of any kind of apprenticeship. You are there watching the master, you watch the master so you can become like the master. And just so, so I just want to put this forward so you know I'm not just making this up. 2 Corinthians 3.18, this is what Paul says regarding this process that's woven into the fabric of reality. By his grace, we beholding, this is where 1 Corinthians 3.18 starts, beholding the, the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. By the Spirit, we are being conformed into the image of Christ. Jesus is the glory of the Lord. He is the manifest presence, the shining radiance of the invisible God. And we are being transformed into his image by the power of the Spirit as we behold him through his word and through his Spirit moving in community. And so I want to ask you, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? Are you giving your time and your attention to things that will make you more and more envious, more and more self righteous like the religious leaders? Are you filling your eyes and are you filling your mind with things that are turning you into the likeness of Pilate? Sacrificing others to get what you want, doing what's expedient so you can hold on to your power. Or are you finding ways of filling your days with the beauty of Jesus? That as his apprentice you are looking now more and more like him. Because reality is your humanity is always and ever being either distorted or redeemed by the things that we do in this world and what we give our attentions to. There's no neutrality. By the end of the day By the end of the day, will you look just a little bit more like the mob? By the end of the day, will you look just a little bit more like Pilate? Or by the end of today, when your head hits that pillow, will you look just a little bit more like Jesus? Behold the man. Look upon Jesus. Look upon Jesus. Father, I want to thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our Lord, our Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for coming in the flesh that we might partake of your work and by the Spirit look upon you and be transformed into your likeness. And it can be slow, degree by degree by degree, but you are doing your faithful work here, my brothers and sisters, and in me. Redeeming my humanity, restoring me, restoring them. Thank you for the glory of that. And so we pray this honors you, Lord, what we're about to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.